Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, we learned the pitfalls of fancy breakfast buffets after two years of living on welfare cheese, and that flock of seagull haircuts and Devo t-shirts were gender fluid in a certain Chinatown parking lot. This week, we realized sometimes you can't go home again, or at least back to your childhood playground, and that Marilyn Monroe had something in common with both my father and brother. But right now, let's get into that 80s groove with the Eurythmics and 1983's Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. School of Visual Arts basically saved me, and I'm not being facetious, because finally, the whatever it was that always made me feel so different and disconnected from nearly everyone else I knew in my family and neighborhood was no longer being suppressed or dismissed. It was embraced and encouraged. But New York City has always been the place where people come to pursue their dreams. But what if you're already from New York City? Where do you go to pursue yours? How do you run away from home when you already are home? People move to New York and they think it's going to be just like girls or sex in the city, only they will never know the New York that I know. I'll not breakfast at Tiffany's or Bright Lights Big City, 
But the real New York, the real New York with junkies and bums and drunks, graffiti and garbage and punks. I mean real punks, not pseudo-skinhead, tribal-tattooed, trustafarians slumming in from the suburbs. I mean real punks, like the Ramones. They were from Forest Hills. And if you knew how growing up in Forest Hills or Tottenville or Parkchester or Canarsie or Hunts Point or Washington Heights or any other place that you would call a small town but we would call a hood, if you only knew how it could be just as suffocating, just as mind-numbing and provincial as any dead-end suburb, you would know why the Ramones had to become the Ramones. But take it from me, crossing the East River can be just as hard as crossing a country or an ocean. And now, chapter 36 from Fish Out of Agua. She looks like Manhattan. One of the things I loved the most out of all the things I loved at the School of Visual Arts was the cave. The cave was the locker room in the school's main building on East 23rd Street. It was in the basement, and it was a piece of history in itself. It was covered all over, every available space, wall, ceiling, and even some of the floor with graffiti some by famous artists who had been at the school before us. Jean-Mel Basquiat, who tagged Salmo, Keith Haring's light bulbs and outline babies, and even Kenny Scharf, although I don't remember what he wrote. Shell dug out her old mini-wide and took a tag or two for old time's sake. I wonder if it's still there. I wonder if the cave still exists. My life had completely changed again. Maybe I hadn't become a famous Broadway actor, but I was studying art with famous people. I took cartooning with Harvey Kurtzman, who founded Mad Magazine and drew Little Annie Fanny and Playboy. I took illustration with Marshall Arisman and advertising with Ron Travisano of Delafamina Travisano and Partners, one of the best-known ad agencies at the time. Even Richard Hell, from the punk bands Television and the Voidoids, came in to speak to one of my English classes and fell asleep in a chair. Every day I'd learned something else about art or the world. Every night there was another art opening to crash at galleries and clubs in the East Village, such as New Math or the Pyramid Club, Club 57, the Fun Gallery, or Gracie Mansion. Sometimes I'd see people from the 1970s graffiti days who were now painting canvases. And sometimes we'd go into Soho and Tribeca, the Tony Shafrazi and Clock Tower openings were the friendliest, meaning the easiest to crash. But more often, more often than not, we'd call those nights being so hopeless because we'd just end up wandering around all night and basically get nowhere. It sure was fun, though. We didn't care if we weren't part of Bright Lights Big City or Slaves of New York, the soon-to-come books that supposedly personified our generation. Because for us skinny little new wave dance nerds, it was enough to go to the Ritz and watch music videos, or to go gallery hopping with Victor, a guy that would have two baggies in the pockets of his jacket, one for the crudités and the other for the dip. Or we'd hang out with our other friends, Gina and Carrie, the roller skate twins, best friends and graphic design majors from Oceanside, Long Island, who wore their skates to school every single day. And when Pasha and I weren't in class, we'd go drink beer at the International Bar, eat mushroom soup and hollow toast at the Kiev Diner, or we'd go to see old movies at the St. Mark's Theater or Theater 80, which were basically right around the corner from each other on St. Mark's Place and 2nd Avenue. One weekend, we went to visit a friend of his who went to SUNY Albany, and we saw the band Squeeze, UB40, and Depeche Mode. Another weekend, we went from seeing Un Chien Andalou in one theater to a race ahead in another, 
bought matching World War One gas gas mask bags to use as um like pocketbooks, whatever, at Unique Clothing Warehouse, and then we went to the Ritz to see Romeo Void. We just thought we were radical and excellent. My two new favorite words. But sometimes when we'd walk down that block on 2nd Avenue between Nightingale's and Dan Lynch and past the Chinese restaurant Jade Garden, I'd think about Uncle Junior and wonder if he still lived in that apartment. I hadn't seen or heard anything about him since Grandma Izzy's funeral. I wondered if he knew I had finally made it into the School of Visual Arts. A couple of times I was tempted to ring his buzzer, but I never did. Every once in a while, I would still check in with St. Peter's Park. Nikki Cleary, who was once Nikki Boom Boom, was now Mrs. Nikki Delarosa. She would sometimes be there with or without her husband, Tommy. Marie would sometimes be there, too. She had a boyfriend called Weezer from Zappa's Corner, and he had made good. she had made good on half her boast from years ago. Maybe she wasn't living in the East Village, but she hung out there now almost every night. Dawn never came around at all anymore, even though her now 33-year-old boyfriend had left her for an 18-year-old. Janie? Janie would always be there. She'd always be in the park. She was basically homeless now and was living under the pool. She'd usually ask me if I had any spare change, but I would say, sorry, I don't have any, and give her cigarettes or some gum instead. I'd learned that from my father. Whenever he was approached by panhandlers, he would offer to buy them a meal to see if they were really hungry. Because most of the time, they just really want booze and dope. And if they did decline the egg on the roll and coffee, then my father would give them a cigarette. So at least they had gotten something and would then leave him alone. The other person who was always still at the park was Pat Balina. Now 23, he still ruled St. Peter's Park the way he had over a dozen years before. Or at least thought he did. The neighborhood had changed. Once my family had been the one and only Latin family around, and now there were dozens, and a Spanish bodega had taken over where Artie's, the Italian deli, had been. And what was once Pat's childish, if annoying, penchant for teasing and bullying had grown up and become serious. Pat may have left me alone after getting me stabbed during one of our high school's yearly race riots, but Nicky and Marie told me that now he and some other boys, young men, really, they would go beat up what they called faggots at the Huntington. The stoner crew that Janie had once hung out with in Pelham Bay Park with there were now long gone. Or they would get into cars and cruise around the Throg's Neck projects to shoot BBs at black and Latin kids. And where once Pat had something to say because I was different, he now would have something else to say because I was different again. I ran into Marie at the Ritz one night, and she told me that Pat told her that I thought I knew who I was, and that she, and that I was going to fart school now, and that I wasn't going to come to the park looking like Manhattan. I could just stay there. And when I heard that, I did what was one of either the bravest or stupidest things I had yet done in a long career of doing stupid things. I decided to bring some of my school of visual arts friends to the park. I don't know why I was still hanging on by the thinnest of threads to a place I no longer, if ever, really belonged, but something in me told me I had to try, so I did. And I took Kevin, Amy, Victor, and Tanya up to the Bronx with me after school one day. 
The plan was to go to the park, have a beer, and then go back downtown to the pyramid and see who wanted to come down with us. I thought for sure Marie would, maybe even Nikki if Tommy was working. But neither Nikki or Marie were there. Pasha hadn't come either. He had to work that night and had told me he thought that this was a really bad idea, but I didn't listen. And later on, I'd be glad he hadn't come, because basically as soon as we walked into the park and sat on the bench, we heard Pat yell, Speck! The hell! Get those niggas and faggots out of my park! I froze. He hadn't used that voice or called me that name in years. But I yelled back, It's not your park! It's a free country and we can hang out anywhere we want! Pat jumped down from the top of the sliding pond where he had been sitting. A couple of guys followed him. I didn't recognize either one of them. Go back to Manhattan, Pat said. That's where you and your faggot friends belong. Let's go, Michelle, Amy said. Come on, these people are assholes, said Kevin. And he took Amy's arm and walked out. Victor and Tanya had already gone. I was beyond furious. It was one thing to call me names. I was used to that. But I had brought my friends all the way up from 23rd Street to hang out where I came from. And there was no way that this fucking stupid, stupid fuck was going to ruin another day for me. I remembered Pat when he was fat and crying with his butt glued onto a chair. Maybe he needed to be reminded of that. I didn't even register that he had had two friends with him, both men, really, and then neither one of them that I knew. And perhaps I should have remembered the small scar on my right shoulder. But before I could open my mouth and make an already bad situation worse, Janie DeWay saved me. She had appeared out of nowhere, or perhaps from under the pool. Show, man! Hey, show, what up, man? You got any spare change? I hardly recognized her. She was bone thin and dirty, and I couldn't even see her face between the now twilight and her tangled, dirty hair. She used to have the prettiest hazel eyes, too. I don't know why I remembered that. Pat whirled around to her. Get the fuck out of here, you fucking stupid junkie slut. I had heard and seen enough. I shut my mouth and walked out of the park. A full can of beer thudded a foot or two behind me, but I didn't look back. And I remember thinking, he must really hate me to waste a full beer. Those were your friends? Tanya asked as we walked back towards the train. No, I said. My friends weren't there. That was as close to the truth as I wanted to get. 1983 began. Mary and Weezer would break up six months later. She would have a nervous breakdown and would never quite be the same again, although we would still keep in touch for a few more years until I moved to Brooklyn. Dawn supposedly, supposedly had moved to Brooklyn too, but I've never seen her. But then again, there are many different Brooklyns. For all I know, Nikki and Tommy are still married. I hope so. They always made a nice couple. Janie died the next summer. One night, she nodded out on a bench and fell over face first into a puddle and drowned in two inches of water. I didn't think that could be true, but it was. And Pat? Well, he hated Puerto Ricans so much, he married one, or a half one, half Irish, half Puerto Rican, a girl named Lisa Lopez from, of all places, 192 Schoolyard. And the last I heard, he had gotten fat again. As for me, I did see Uncle Junior one last time, too. Cousin Isabel had gotten into some trouble and had come to New York to get out of it. 
She was staying at Uncle Junior's, and when my father, Kevin, and I went to see her there, I almost didn't recognize her either. She looked thin and drawn, like Janie had been the last time I had seen her. Uncle Junior looked better, though, filled out, smooth, and placid. They seemed to have changed places with each other over the last ten years. We sat in the brick-walled kitchen and had an awkward conversation over café con leche, which Uncle Junior made with a colador, just like Grandma Izzy used to. I mentioned that I had been going to the School of Visual Arts, and Uncle Junior's eyes went huge, but he said nothing. My father said, yeah, I couldn't stop her, but she's turning out all right. But he kept his eyes on me the entire time we were there. Uncle Junior was moving. He and his wife and her still-fat, still-pimply, still-too-quiet son had bought a house and were moving to, of all places, Long Beach, Long Island. What was it with my family in the ocean? And Uncle Junior said that he could arrange for my name to be put on his lease. He would tell the landlords that I was his daughter from his first wife and that when he moved, I could take over the apartment. I would be a lot closer to school and the art world. I couldn't believe it. I was beyond thrilled. I could have a four-room garden apartment on 2nd Avenue between 11th and 12th Street in the East Village that cost less than $300 a month? He'd been living there since the 1960s. And even I could almost afford that, I thought. I started calculating. Maybe I could get Amy to move in with me. Or maybe Tanya. Or maybe both Amy and... No, my father said, interrupting my dreams. Absolutely not. But, 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 but nothing. I don't know when it's the right time for you to be out on your own. And now is not it. We left soon after, and Kevin said to me, Why would you want to live there? That place is a rat hole. And that was when I realized how different Kevin and I had really become. I saw brick walls and a fireplace and a garden with ivy. And I could see in my imagine, in my mind, how I could fill that apartment with artwork and friends and plants and parties. But Kevin just saw a four-room railroad apartment where you had to have the lights on during the day and a backyard that was really not much more than a brick-walled alley between two buildings that had one trash tree and a kitchen table-sized patch of dirt. I knew what Kevin wanted. He wanted to be a Wall Street trader and live on the Upper East Side in the doorman elevator building. The absolute last place I'd want to live. I realized how I didn't really know my brother anymore at all. How could two people who came from the same womb and grew up in the same place be so completely different? I would never live in Uncle Junior's or anyone else's apartment in the East Village. Just before Thanksgiving and right in the middle of packing, Uncle Junior would leave St. Vincent's one evening after work, turn the corner, and drop down to the sidewalk dead. We found out later that it was said that his liver had just exploded. Even after being clean for over 10 years, the decades of doing heroin had just been too much for it. They also said he probably had never felt a thing. I hope not. When my School of Visual Arts graduation came around, some of my friends talked about moving into a squat on Avenue C and asked if I wanted to join them. I said no. I had seen that squat. And for almost 20 years, I had been living in a five-story walk-up that had heat and hot water troubles, and I occasionally had to walk over, dodge, or otherwise watch out for junkies or drunks, and sometimes worse, and quite frankly, I wanted something different. 
So I said no. My father had been almost right. When it would be time for me to leave home, I'd know. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua. That was Run Like Hell from Pink Floyd's 1980s The Wall and Love and Rockets for the 1985 cover of Ball of Confusion, The Temptations Song from the 60s, playing on the parts of, of this story. And now it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're going to storytelling world with this fellow solo performer and filmmaker. Although he would probably say that his greatest production is his daughter, Cosette. Take a listen. Oh my God. So like the past couple of weeks, we've, I've been having people on from, that I knew back in the day or back in the day day. Oh no, honey. We, there were people that we went back to like the nineties, mm-hmm. like the turn of the century. But this <laughs> is a gentleman that I have met recently in the, within the past five years. And I know him through storytelling. And we also bonded because we both are published authors mm-hmm. and, and we're both native New Yorkers yes, and yes. yes, and he's filmmaker and I make little crazy films too. So I cannot wait to share with you the fantastic, uh, artwork and everything that Mark Abbott does. Welcome, Mark Abbott, to Fish Out of Agua. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, cool. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we, you know, we just, like, we, we sneak in the interview in, like, you know, <laughs> in, like, an unused conference room. We're like, right. guerrilla art! Yeah, that, that's the best way to do it. Hell yeah. On the fly, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the fly. Mm-hmm. So thanks for coming, for taking time in, in your busy day to talk with us. So why don't you talk, uh, we talk a little bit about um, the storytelling scene that we both come came from through yeah in. you know it, it's interesting because I um you're newer to it than I, I am I, I fell into storytelling it really was and when was that oh 2013 I think it was oh okay wow. had to be 2013 in the because, same decade wow because what happened was I was um I was a self-published author mm-hmm. I had uh, several books out and I had hit I had started my own publishing label Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, I had was a, it, I had, it was called Hobcat Publishing. Hobcat, like your kitty. Yes. You have a song yeah, like that. Oh, we'll talk about that next. And and cats are prominent with this mess. That's why I like him. He likes kitties. <laughs> and, and basically, I started my own label because I just couldn't get any publishing house to uh, carry mm. any of my work. Wow. And I pretty much taught myself to be a self-published author. Uh, but I think what happened was I got a little too, too aggressive. I jumped the gun a lot. I, I published oh. stuff before I, you know, I, I didn't really wait. I didn't let things marinate a while before trying to go on to the next project because oh. I just felt, internally, I felt like I got to get this stuff out. I got to right, get it right, out. Right. I got to get it out. And uh, it became too much for me, and I became extremely stressed. Um, one of my books didn't do so well, and I, the company that I started was basically, I wasn't making any money. And pretty much the IRS came after me because oh, they claimed, they claimed that I, I hadn't uh, paid my back taxes, which wasn't a lot. Originally, they wanted to come after me for ten grand, but I know this like small changes. I, I told them, I'm I, like, said, oh, I said, sure. I said, oh, you, can, you can come. What, what do you want to get? You want to get the PDFs of the book because that's about as much as you're going to get from me. There's, <laughs> oh, there's nothing to take. There were no assets or anything. Um, How about Hobcat? No, at that point, um, Hobbs, who was the namesake after of my company, had passed away. So you couldn't even come and take the cat in if you wanted to. Uh, And so I, it was one of those moments in life where you know everything kind of hit rock bottom, Mm. and you know I have a regular job, Mm -hmm. so this wasn't something I was living off of. Yeah. 
the, the day job. So, um, so I really wasn't. It wasn't a situation where I was. I was starving for money, but it just for me personally, it just felt like a, a huge fail. And the bar that I used to hang, where I continue to hang out at, um, I was in there one night trying to figure out what my next move was going to be and whether or not I should give up writing or storytelling at all. And I walked into a live storytelling show. Oh, wow. Um, Which one? It was Tell It Brooklyn with Susan oh, Kent, Susan Kent and, and um, Victoria Scroggins. Hopefully we'll have and, Susan on a future episode. And they basically, I asked them, what, what, what is the idea behind this? They said, put your name in the, in the bucket and you get, we pull it, you get five minutes to tell any true story. And it's one of those things where I got up, I told my story and it was like, I got bit by the bug. And I just, every time, every once a month, they'd come monthly. And then I just found myself following them wherever they went. After um, they left the bar, they went to other places in, in the city. And I just found them. And after a while, Susan said to me, you know, it's like sort of the bird out of the nest. She was like, you can't just keep coming to our shows. You have to go to other shows, branch out, try different things. Ah, that was cool. A mentor. And, and sure enough, I started going to other shows and you know, different people started catching on and and finally Susan kept saying, Well, you know, you have to do the moth and I said, No, I, I can't do the moth. I'm not ready for the moth. Um and that went on for a couple of years until Really? Until wow. she finally said, you know, you pick a night, I will go with you. And the night I went, uh I my got my name pulled. I ended up winning the story slam. Cool. And I'm a first-time winner too. The first really, one up, I won. It's a bunch oh, of it, us. It's 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 changes things. Yeah, it, it does. does. It does. It validates and you. You're yeah, like, you're like, whoa, I could do this. It's, and I thought it ended there until they told me I had to do the Grand Slam. Right. And then I won the Grand Slam. And then that at that point I was I was pretty much confident in myself as a storyteller because yeah. I mean up until then it was just sort of like okay this is something to do uh, I think I'm good at it I mean I enjoy it um, but you know there's something about winning the Moth Grand Slam that kind of solidifies you within the community and it allowed me to go and move on and yeah. do my own shows. So, and like it also affords you the luxury of being booked on other people's shows and yeah. shows that have more more presence and more prominence. Yes, definitely, yes, definitely. definitely. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is really cool. And you know, I really also love that um, your whole entrepreneurial like 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 guerrilla shit mm -hmm. because like most people if they got turned down by a publishing company they would just start a blog you just mm -hmm. started a whole company yeah and you were just <laughs> <laughs> I love that and, I think and, that's awesome and it was funny because it was one of those decisions it really stemmed from the fact that one of the publishing companies said to me we I kept getting the, re the traditional rejection letters mm -hmm. But many of them kept saying, we love the story, we love the characters, we just don't know who to market the book to. Oh, and, and gee, and, why would that and be? I, and I said, wow, oh, that, that a leading that's, question? that's interesting because the story is about two high school seniors who throw a hooky party. How? What, I don't understand why you can't sell, you yeah, can't push that. Wasn't there a movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off Bueller's or Risky Day, Business? And Risky Business, House Party. There's yeah, a, house a thousand, party, kid and a play. Thousand, a thousand and one stories like that. But apparently, um, I kind of got the idea that because my characters didn't use a lot of foul language, uh, they were they were urban students, but they didn't act like they were from the streets. So they were educated colored yes, people. Yes, yes. 
And so all of a sudden, it People was a, a book that couldn't sell. Educated. And what I did was I, I went to my wife and I said, listen, I have this crazy idea of starting my own publishing company. Um, you know, I'm going to take some of my, my tax money and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to jump in. And the, went to the Brooklyn Book Fair Good with that for book. You. We printed Damn. out. We printed out over 100 copies of that book. And we came home with two. So That's amazing. It, it, it was one of those, no one ever heard of me, um, but mostly high school students and, and middle school students yeah. were buying the book up like crazy. See, sometimes and I said, you know, know. sometimes, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, you just got to take the chance yeah. and, and, and do it. Look, I was published by a traditional publishing company, and, you know, it's not like I was on a bestseller list either because all the books that were being reviewed by all written were all written by uh, men named Jonathan mm. that year. Mm. They were all from Brooklyn. And I was like, I live in Brooklyn. Don't I deserve something, too? I, right. You know, but I, I keep on keeping on. You know, yeah, f- yeah. Fish Out of Agua is taught in um, many schools nice. uh, uh, nice. across the country, actually, mm-hmm. and in New York. So, you know, and it lives. It lives on here. Yeah. But, man, back to storytelling. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that you could just get to the moth and, and, like, just get up on stage and then you win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it wasn't something I was trying to do. It was, it, I went in there just hoping I would get called and that people would enjoy the story. Now, what, when, what did you get called in, in, in the lineup? Did you get called towards the end? Yes, the second half of the, of the show. Okay, yeah, because uh, I got called up last one is time. usually they call the sweet spot. Yes. Um, and yeah. the same thing happened at the Grand Slam. I was part in of the, the second spot? half nah. in the sweet spot. Yeah. So it... Um, yeah. I mean... The moth is great. I mean, you don't make bank from it. No. <laughs> no. no, no, no. But, like, but, you get, like, props. You yeah. get, like, intellectual props from mm-hmm. it. That, that's why I love it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so um, you're also a filmmaker. And yes. you're a solo performer. You and I mm-hmm. were both in at the Tanks uh, Festival last year. Yes. 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 Um, I'm actually, I just got accepted to the New Artist Works um, For... Festival. Oh. Um, the, what they call EATS. EATS? Uh, yeah. Like EATS? Yes. And um, I heard about that through Robin Kaffenbaum. Oh, cool. She, uh, she put me on to it. And I do you submitted. get a run or do you get like a one-off? I get, it's a one-night. Okay. It's a one-night. Um, if you, if you hear waiting. anything, I want a run. I just, oh. I, I would love to have a run. It's, it's, we have it's, great solo shows. If you, if you can offer us a theater for a five or six, a six we, we, we will sell out. There goes the neighborhood. I would love to do a run. It's Those are some of the hardest but things. But tell us about what, what, what you are doing. Um, so basically, I did a um, I did a sophomore show called uh, Love African American yes, Style. Yes, which I saw. Um, that was at the Tank Theater back in October. Mm-hmm. And it really was it really was a dress rehearsal. I really wanted people to come try to get a feel of how the audience felt about it. Um, and surprisingly enough, not only did the audience like it, but I walked away getting a director, um, one of my friends who's a, who's a stage manager. He stage manages mm. a lot of TV shows in the city. Uh, he loved the show, and he said, you know, he gave me some tips, and I said to him, I said, well, why don't you just be my director and help me out and he was like I'd love to that's great so was he someone you knew when you were working on Law and Order no this guy I met him through the Horror Writers Association oh okay because otherwise I would be like oh my god like how freaking cosmic is that it would have been like you were working at Law and Order so you Mm -hmm. could meet that person but that didn't happen so so um, yeah he was part of the uh, the Horror Writers Association and we just clicked the moment we met. We That's just, great. We, so we when is this clicked. festival and when will you be doing this show? Um, the festival is at the end of February, first week of, oh, okay. of March. 
Uh, I'm waiting to hear now what date they're going to give me. I actually want the last day of the festival mm. um, because that'll give me enough time to prep and do get everything together. The sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping I'm hoping for that because oh, the open house for this is on the 13th of February, which okay. literally. That's. I mean, we've already hit the ground running. We've started the rehearsals and everything. Great. But we don't know what the space looks like. Right. So until I we know, know that, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, always yeah. the tough part. So you it. mentioned the Horror Writers Association, mm -hmm. which is going to lead me to the next art form that you pursue, which is filmmaking. So tell us yeah. a little bit about that. You were on a red carpet about a week or so ago, it weren't you? It was this past weekend. I, um, I was at the Macabre Fair Film Festival. Cool. Um, doing double duty, actually. I was. I have a horror film short in in the piece and I was also uh, nominated as a best actor that is for amazing film. yes wow well wow. but did you win no ah, that's no. okay but, but you were nominated cool. I yeah. was nominated no, that, um, that was a big deal my, my boyfriend Larry and I we did the Sparrow Film Festival in the spring and I got nominated for best screenplay oh, and nice. I found out I came in second mm. and he got nominated for best art direction and he we found out he came in second right. what are you gonna do yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, At least you will. People recognize your work. And if the shizzle was good, yes. Or it means it means we had fine, outstanding <laughs> work, didn't exactly. we? I like being able to speak multiple languages, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Mark, mm -hmm. it's been great speaking with you. So, oh. if people want to learn more about your fabulousness, where should they go? Uh, www. Who is Mark L And that is M A R C L A B B O T. Two T's. Two T's. Yes. Ah, it's okay. Uh, like, you know, <laughs> we, 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 we try, but, you know, sometimes. Yeah, Mark yeah. L. Abbott with two T's. Yes. Thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua. And, Thank you for having And see me. you later. See you at a story show. Hi. Right, see you soon. And now, a short word from a fellow Radio Free Brooklyner. Join me, Kelly Mockstar Dwyer, every other Friday night here on Radio Free Brooklyn from 8 to 10 p.m. for... <laughs> Mockumental features indie, comedy, quirky, and novelty music and the musicians who create it. Whether you're chilling after a hard-ass week of work or you're pre-gaming for a Friday night rave, Mockumental is a party in your panties. Let's feel funny together. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua. There are many things that made the 1980s different than today, and the first thing you could say is technology, but yes, we did have computers. Apple introduced the Macintosh, what we now call the Mac, when I was still at School of Visual Arts. But another difference between the two generations, I think, is irony. Well, maybe Gen X didn't invent it. Of course they didn't, but they sure embraced it. Because if it was weird, if it was disturbing, if we thought it was avant and made grown-ups cringe, we loved it. Well, of course every generation does this to their elders. I guess it's just more relatable when it's yours. Now, I remember going to the Revival Movie Houses, Theater 80, The Biograph, and Film Forum to see Todd Browning's Freaks, David Lynch's Eraserhead, John Waters' Polyester, and Slava Sukuman's Liquid Sky over and over and over. We didn't want nice. We didn't want pretty. Sometimes we wanted to be offended. Sometimes we wanted to make fun of everybody and thought no one should be exempt. Some of the most acclaimed films, television shows, and songs from the 70s and 80s would be excoriated today from the type of person who now gets offended by everything. An irony that does not wholly escape me. But for people of my parents' generation, their forbidden fruit was sex, which by the time this story happens was not forbidden at all, at least for another couple of years.
And now, Chapter 37 of Fish Out of Agua. Contraband. In some ways, my father was the Ralph Cramden of St. Peter's Avenue. He always had some plot, some scheme, to try to make some extra money. When we first moved to St. Peter's Avenue, he used to play the number. No, not lotto, but the real, old-school number that was played to scary old men in the back rooms of candy stores that sold wormy chunky bars and pretzel sticks so stale you'd break off a baby tooth just looking at them. My mother hated when he did it, and whenever she found one of those scribbled little slips of paper in his pockets, she'd stick in another with a Bible verse about the evils of gambling. But that never stopped my dad from trying to hit the big one. Usually he only won enough to keep playing, but once, as if by some quasi-divine intervention, he did hit a big one, just after our ancient black-and-white television fizzled out. And he bought a huge console, a piece of furniture, really, that included a state-of-the-art color television, a turntable, AM-FM radio, four speakers, and an eight-track, which sat in my parents' apartment for the next 15 years. My mother looked up from watching Star Trek, she loved Captain Kirk, in color for the very first time, and she told him he had gotten lucky and now should stop. But he didn't listen. And then the day came when he was trying to cross the street but missed the light, and in the minute he waited to cross Westchester Avenue, a phalanx of cops swarmed in on the candy store, arresting everyone inside. And that was the end of his gambling days. Before that, and before I had gone to live with my abuelita, my father had been Hunts Point Avenue's self-proclaimed animal cop. He had always loved animals and had tended pigeons on many rooftops in Spanish Harlem as a child and teenager. I dimly remember a makeshift animal ward on the fire escape just before Kevin was born. A shoebox that first held a broken-winged pigeon that disappeared, then a baby squirrel that died, and then a couple of poor, mangy, flea-ridden kittens, one of which my mother actually let me keep, only sadly it died too. On one day on his way home from work, my father saw a puppy get hit by a car, and he thought if he saved it and found its owner, he would get a reward. So my father brought it upstairs and shaved its bloody leg, and then cleaned up the gashes with hydrogen peroxide, and sewed up the biggest gash with my mother's crochet thread and a needle. He made a splint for the broken paw, with sticks from the popsicles he made me eat after dinner, and he gave the puppy a bath, fed, and brushed it, and petted it until it fell asleep. It was the best treatment that poor dog probably ever had, and as I recall, my father didn't get bit even once. But when my father tracked down the owner, who happened to live in our building, the owner said that he had thrown the dog out on purpose. He had wanted the dog to die, and to which my father said, What? How about I take you outside and I throw you in front of a car, see how you like it? And then my father started walking away. He really wouldn't have done anything more than talk, but then the man said back, Oh yeah, how about I punch you in the nose? So my father walked back, and a nose-to-nose face-off of words ensued until somebody finally went downstairs and got my mother. I don't remember what happened to the dog, but that was the end of my father's veterinary hobby. Years later, when I was in junior high school, my father got the idea that he could rewire lamps people were throwing out and sell them back to the junk stop, junk, junk shop. This was before <clears throat> junk became vintage. And... My mother said, what do you think you're doing? You know nothing about electricity. 
But since, or maybe in spite of, my mother not being able to find any Bible verses about lamp wiring in either the Old or New Testaments, our living room was soon filled with a collection of lamps that had probably been the cat's pajamas when they were new. But then one day I came home from school and plugged one of them in. The next thing I knew, Kevin was crying, and when my mother said, I told you not to bring junk into the house, my father yelled back, well, who told you to plug it in? Meanwhile, I was on the living room floor with overcooked spaghetti for limbs and brain and a little black mark on my right thumb and left toe. The trip to the emergency room ended up costing my father more than he would have made on ten lamps, and that was the end of his electrical career. And then there was his last venture, a short-lived stint as a deposit can middleman. That had been almost two years before this already humid early June evening began. My father had been sitting in front of the television, watching the Mets, and drinking his nightly quart of fresh iced tea, when Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy started talking about this certain issue of Playboy magazine, a really old one. It was the one that had Marilyn Monroe in it as the sweetheart. It wasn't even called a centerfold yet, and this issue had just sold at an auction for $10,000. And when my father heard that, he leapt off the couch, ran to his closet, and started rooting around in it. $10,000! $10,000! As he tried to get to digging to the bottom. Where is she? Where is my Marilyn? Goddamn son of a bitch! $10,000! Lucy! Up until that point, everything in my childhood had always been a secret. The Spanish language, certain whereabouts of certain relatives, and the bottom of my father's closet. Even when Kevin had been sure a Woolworth's box turtles named Charlie Brown and Snoopy, the only pets we had been allowed to have in that apartment, had crawled out of their tank to commit suicide in there together ten years before, we didn't even so much as open the door to look. A man needs his privacy, my father said. You'll understand when you're older, he said to my brother, and then he looked at me. You're old enough to understand that now. My mother just rolled her eyes and said nothing. Well, he didn't dare say anything to her. My father growled as he accused my mother of throwing the magazine out. Yeah? Yourself, my mother hissed back. You dare to have playboys in my house around my children? As if she hadn't been married to him for almost 30 years and never suspected and as if there were any actual children still living in the house. Kevin and I were now a ripe old 20 and 23, respectively. My father looked at me and in one second dismissed me as the traitor. Next, he looked at my brother, who immediately paled and looked at the floor. And then Kevin slowly walked into his half-bedroom, and we all followed him as he went to his bed, pulled up the mattress, and revealed Marilyn jammed in there. My father picked, or rather scraped and peeled, the magazine off the box spring, held it up by one corner, and looked as if he was going to start bawling. Marilyn was definitely showing her age. Obviously soaking wet when she was stashed away, all her technicolors had run together into a streaked psychedelic mud. She was peppered with dried mildew spots, and her edges were started to crumble much as if she might have looked had she allowed herself to live. My father's eyes went from Marilyn to my brother, and you could see they were both shaking, but for totally different reasons. My father put one of his hands on my brother's shoulder. He had to reach up, 
Kevin was now six feet one inch tall, and he asked one question. When? Kevin's face had now turned completely red. I could tell he had forgotten about this a long time ago and was not only embarrassed, but a little frightened. His voice squeaked. S-s-s-s-s-s-seventy-six! It took my father a few seconds to do the math. You were... thirteen? Not yet, Daddy. It was March. Huh, my father said. And he gave Kevin a little head nod and smile, put his arm around his shoulders, and walked him back to the living room to watch the Mets. If I remember correctly, they won that night. Again. The Pat Zacharys, Hubie Brooks, and Joel Youngbloods had given way to Ron Darling, Dwight Gooden, and Daryl Strawberry. The Mets were starting to be good now. Really good. I wasn't staying to watch the game with them, though. I was going out to meet Pasha at the Ritz. I think we were going to see Oingo Boingo. But when I went to say good night to my mother, she was still standing there in front of the closet, staring. That next June, I walked into Lincoln Center wearing a green and black checked miniskirt with flanged, padded shoulders. I was finally graduating from the School of Visual Arts. And not only did I graduate with honors, I had one of the top three portfolios in the advertising design department. It was a proud, happy occasion for my family. After all, I was the first one on both sides to finish, never mind graduate, college. At our celebration lunch at the Lobster Box on City Island, Dithi Ophelia, who I later found out not only had arranged the lunch but paid for it, told me after a couple of pina coladas and asking me to follow her out into the parking lot, told me that, um, that I had ruined my life. Because you could have been something, Michelle. You could have been something, but now you just ruined it with all this art school, but I wish you luck anyway. You see, the Titi Ophelia, something meant someone who worked at doing something that she could understand. I wondered what it would be like to work every day at a real advertising agency. I had already lined up a job that was to begin in September, and for some reason this terrified me, and I suddenly wished I was a kid in seventh grade again. My only responsibility trying to figure out how to paint a throw-up on a subway train. Later that night, I smoked a cigarette out of the bathroom window. I could smoke in the apartment, but I always liked looking out this window. I saw a group of boys hitting up the layups. I thought about what my father told me the opening night of Guys and Dolls back at New York City Community College five years before. And how, yeah, I did set an example for Kevin and my cousins by graduating college. I thought about how far I'd come. But how far would I still have to go? Years later, I would find out that my future husband had been tagging trains along those layups all the time that year and swore he was there that June. He would show me the pictures to prove it. When my father died, I was the one who cleaned out his closet. And besides the two mummified remains of two Woolworths box turtles... I found this entire stash of Playboys, all with their centerfolds ripped out. Betty Page, Jane Mansfield, B.B. Buell, Barbie Benton, all worth something then, all gone now. And there was something else, a box with a Marilyn Monroe doll in that famous pose from the seven-year itch still sealed in its box. I don't know why he had it, 
Maybe it reminded him of his and my mother's first date, when they had walked down Lexington Avenue, stumbled into the film shoot for The Seven-Year Itch, and watched her being filmed standing on the subway grating in that famous white dress. That date had been over thirty years ago, before my mother got sick, before she went into the hospital, before things happened. The doll was pristine and untouched in its box. It had never been opened, and there was a piece of paper taped to it that said in my father's scrawl, I can still dream, can't I? I don't know if that note was for my mother's benefit or for his. I'll never find out, but I can guess. The doll is now out of the closet. She sits in my writing studio now, still in her box, and I know exactly what she's worth. Doll? Suggested retail? $25. eBay bid for memorabilia collector? $750. Revealing memory of your father? Priceless. That was a clip from the Four Tops 1965 hit, It's the Same Old Song, playing underneath the Ophelia part of the previous story. And um, I want to talk a little bit about The Seven-Year Itch. That is a story that I've heard my entire life, that my mom and dad's first date, on their first date, they were walking down Lexington Avenue at about 1 o'clock in the morning, and they ran into the film shoot. And they just stood there and they just like watched it. And like my mom was just like fascinated because she loved Marilyn Monroe and she loved anything having to do with fashion and dresses and prettiness. And my dad, basically, my my mother said, was more interested in trying to find Joe DiMaggio. So there you go. And, you know, my mom will swear to this day that like, yeah, dad, your father wanted to get an autograph. And like I was watching Marilyn. But that scene actually took place on September 15th, 1954 at one o'clock in the morning. In front of an estimated crowd of between one and 5,000 spectators, that's a pretty large discrepancy there. I, I don't know, I got that from the internet. So there were a bunch of people there watching. Now, Marilyn Monroe's then-husband was New York Yankees superstar Joe DiMaggio. And he was one of the onlookers during the scene. And he was reportedly embarrassed and angry and really upset. So if my dad had tried to ask for an autograph, it would have been like, forget it, right? <laughs> and... Director Billy Wilder was credited later as saying that he had guys fighting as to who was going to put the ventilator on in the shaft there below the grill to blow up her dress. And that's a statement that would not be well received today, ironically or not. The Seven Year Itch was banned in Ireland due to the fact that it was indecent and unfit for general exhibition, and the recently deceased actress Debbie Reynolds, who was a collector of Hollywood memorabilia, saved it years later, the, saved the, the white dress from the MGN trash heap and put it up for auction where it would sell for over $5 million. Wow, that's crazy, right? And that's our show. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you liked what you've heard today or in a past episode, sponsor us. There's a little green button at the bottom of the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com that says sponsor the show. You click on that little green button and you let Patreon take care of the rest. And you can do it for as little as $1 per episode. There's only 10 episodes left, so you figure that's the cost of two and a half copies of Playboy magazine in 1984. 
Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with a pair of songs that I listen. One I listened to with my boyfriend, uh, Oingo Boingo. I love little girls, and one that I am totally sure that my mother and father listened to, either before or after their night with Marilyn Monroe. It's called "I Got a Woman," and it's from Ray Charles in 1984. Oingo Boingo, and then Ray Charles. Yeah, that's kind of a match made in heaven, right? <laughs> yeah, 1981 and 1954. Okay, kids, that's our show. See you next week.
got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, yeah. Grumbles of fusses always treats me right. Never running in the streets and leaving me alone. She knows a woman's place is right there now in her home. I got a woman way over town that's good to me. Oh, oh yeah. She's all right. She's all right. She's all right. 